Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever considered just how many of your Facebook friends are actually friends of yours in real life? Well, on this episode, we explore ideas about the connections that sustain us in the digital world, in nature, in our bodies, and in our relationships. Today's show is called Networks, and it originally aired in January of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, ideas about the power of networks, how those connections and those pathways define the world around us, in our cities, in our relationships, in our bodies, and especially in nature. So about 25 years ago, forest ecologist Suzanne Simard had a hunch. Yes, that's right. She thought that trees could talk. Imagine, like, when you're walking through the forest, you might you hear the crunching of the twigs under your feet and the rustling of the leaves. But she thought, what if there's more going on? Like a big chattering going on that we can't hear. That they're attuned to each other. Now, at the time, and again, this is about 25 years ago, a team of scientists in England were wrapping up an experiment. Where they'd grown... In the laboratory, these pine seedlings together in little root boxes that you could see through. And the scientists took two of these pine seedlings, these baby trees, that were in the same box, in the same dirt, and then they exposed one of these seedlings to a radioactive carbon dioxide gas. Carbon-14, a radioactive carbon. And what they found was that some of that radioactive gas, the carbon-14, made its way into the second seedling. You could visualize it, you could see it. And so from this experiment, it seemed that somehow these two plants in the same dirt were connected. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe this is what's going on in my forest. Maybe, Suzanne Samard thought, maybe all the trees in a forest were connected in a kind of network. Yeah, like our airport system, our transportation system, um, our social networks. And maybe, she thought, all of this was happening underground. When we walk through the forest, what we see as human beings, we just see these, you know, beautiful trees growing out of the ground, but we don't see that they're actually completely linked underground in this superhighway. So Suzanne decided to prove this underground network existed. She devised an experiment using some of the same radioactive gas, a Geiger counter to measure it, and a patch of birch and fir trees. I figured the birch and the fir would be connected in a below-ground web. Suzanne picks up the story from the TED stage. And I gathered my apparatus, plastic bags and duct tape and shade cloth, a paper suit, a respirator. And then I borrowed some high-tech stuff from my university, a Geiger counter, a mass spectrometer, microscopes, the first day of the experiment, we got out to our plot, and I pulled on my white paper suit, I put on my respirator, I put the plastic bags over my trees. I got my giant syringes, and I injected carbon-14, the radioactive gas, into the bag of birch. I waited an hour. I figured it would take this long for the trees to suck up the CO2 through photosynthesis, send it down into their roots, and maybe shuttle that carbon below ground to their neighbors. I went to my first bag with the birch. I pulled the bag off. I ran my Geiger counter over its leaves. <sighs> Perfect. The birch had taken up the radioactive gas. Then the moment of truth. I went over to the fir tree. I pulled off its bag. I ran the Geiger counter up its needles, and I heard the most beautiful sound. <sighs> It was the sound of Birch talking to Fur. And Birch was saying, hey, can I help you? And Fur was saying, yeah, can you send me some of your carbon? 
I was so excited. I ran from plot to plot, and I checked all 80 replicates. The evidence was clear. Paper, Birch, and Douglas were in a lively two-way conversation. It turns out at that time of the year, in the summer, that Birch was sending more carbon to fir than fir was sending back to birch, especially when the fir was shaded. And then in later experiments, we found the opposite: that fir was sending more carbon to birch than birch was sending to fir. And this was because the fir was still growing while the birch was leafless. So it turns out the two species were interdependent, like yin and yang. And at that moment, everything came into focus for me. I knew I'd found something big, something that would change the way we look at how trees interact in forests—from not just competitors, but to cooperators. Now you have to understand that Suzanne's discovery was pretty revolutionary because, up until this point. Most ecologists believed that trees competed against each other. That that their world was like a, a Darwinian struggle with winners and losers. Yeah, you know that they're competing for light and water and nutrients. And that the strongest trees were the ones that grew tall, the ones that dominated the canopy and took all the resources. It was like, oh, I'm going to get what I want, and I don't care what my neighbor needs. But Suzanne's experiment showed that. Something else was true. They're actually sending messages back and forth that balances the resource distribution among the community. In other words, trees aren't just connected; they're actually sharing resources with each other. So what we found initially, if one tree had a lot of of water in it, or a lot of nitrogen, or had high photosynthetic rate, and if one tree is sick, then The neighboring tree shuttles more of those nutrients to that suffering tree. And when you say communicate, do, do they actually communicate? Like, do they warn each other about like a, a fire or or an invasive species or something? Yes. So if one tree gets damaged by, say, mountain pine beetle, the injured seedling will up its defense enzymes, and then the receiving tree will then increase its defense enzymes because it knows now that there's some kind of damaging. Agent around. Wow. So, so how are they? How are they doing this? Like, how are they communicating through through an underground network? So they're physically connected、um, by these microscopic fungi. And so mushrooms. Yes, you're right. We call them hyphae or mycelium. In fact, like if you were to you know peel back the surface of the forest floor, you'll see the fungi that are linking these trees together. They're very visible, and it's. These white and yellow, different colored threads that are—they look like you know sewing threads, but they're fungal threads, and they're crisscrossed and going off in multiple directions,、um, and they work together to create a very you know a very complex web, and they're in constant communication between all the trees. So this network is called the mycorrhizal network, and Suzanne wanted to see how intricate it actually was. So she built a map, a massive interconnected map, where each tree represents a circle or a node. The biggest, darkest nodes, we call those hub trees, or more fondly, mother trees, because it turns out that those hub trees nurture their young, the ones growing in the understory. And if you can see those yellow dots, those are the young seedlings that have established within the network of the old mother trees. In a single forest, a mother tree can be connected to hundreds of other trees. We have found that mother trees will send their excess carbon through the mycorrhizal network to the understory seedlings, and we've associated this with increased seedling survival by four times. Now we know we all favor our own children. And I wondered, could Douglas fir recognize its own kin? So we set about an experiment, and we grew mother trees with kin and stranger seedlings. And it turns out they do recognize their kin. Mother trees colonize their kin with bigger mycorrhizal networks. They send them more carbon below ground. They even reduce their own root competition to make elbow room for their kids. When mother trees are injured or dying. They also send messages, wisdom onto the next generation of seedlings, and these have increased the resistance of those seedlings to future stresses. It's it's almost like 
like with these trees and especially what the mother trees are doing, it's it's almost like a selfless act. Well, it, it seems like that at the surface, but when you start digging down into the multiple interactions going on in the forest, it's not really a selfless act because trees need a complex or a diverse community to thrive in. Um, they need you know, other plants that can cycle nutrients more quickly or that can access nutrients in different niches. They need uh, other neighbors that are resistant to insects and diseases. So it's actually in their self-interest to be sharing these resources with their neighbors to make sure their neighbors, their diverse community is vibrant because that feeds back to them and then they're more vibrant and healthy. Yeah, it's, it's almost like they, they need each other. Yes, I think, you know, one way for us to think about this, um, you know, we live in communities of, you know, doctors and teachers and people that are running the coffee shops and bakers, and there's a whole range of skills that make a thriving community. We need each other. If you take away, you know, the baker, then we've got no bread. If we take away the banker, where do we get our money? So it's the same in a forest. There's all these different species, and they're all part of this holistic functioning ecosystem. They all have a role to play, just like in our human communities. And if you lose one of those key individuals, then the whole thing has to reorganize itself to make up for what's missing. Forests aren't simply collections of trees. They're complex systems with hubs and networks that overlap and connect trees and allow them to communicate and they provide avenues for feedbacks and adaptation. And this makes the forest resilient. That's because there are many hub trees and many overlapping networks. But they're also vulnerable, because hub trees are not unlike rivets in an airplane. You can take out one or two, and the plane still flies. But you take out one too many, or maybe that one holding on the wings, and the whole system collapses. Well, you know the great thing about forests? as complex systems, is they have enormous capacity to self-heal. In our recent experiments, we found with retention of hub trees and regeneration to a diversity of species and genes and genotypes, that these mycorrhizal networks, they recover really rapidly. We need to regenerate our forests with a diversity of species and genotypes and structures by planting and allowing natural regeneration, we have to give Mother Nature the tools she needs to use her intelligence to self-heal. And we need to remember that forests aren't just a bunch of trees competing with each other. They're super cooperators. Thank you. Forest ecologist Suzanne Samard. She's based at the University of British Columbia. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. Our show today ideas about the power of networks. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Simply Safe. Simply Safe is thoughtfully designed home security. It was created in collaboration with leading design firm IDEO, and they put a lot of care and attention into every detail, from beautiful sensors that disappear into your home to gentle reminders if you accidentally leave a window open. It's an intuitive system, home security you'll actually want in your home. Plus, when you order your system, Simply Safe will also donate one to a family in need. Learn more at simplysafe.com slash radio hour. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Thank you. 
Hey, Asma. Hey, Scott. Another crazy week. We've got North Korea. Yep, we got Russia. Midterms. And of course, President Trump. And what happens whenever there is crazy news that erupts? We pop into the studio and break it down to make sense. So if you see a headline... We've discussed it. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, the power of networks, the forces that connect us and the connections we build for ourselves. Uh, can you tell me about your like your typical uh, morning drive into work? <laughs> Absolutely terrible. <laughs> Mind-numbing. For one thing, it lasts at least an hour and a half. Uh, and the interesting thing is that six years ago, over the same distance, uh, uh, you know, my commute was 45 minutes. This is Wanis Kabaj. And I'm a director of healthcare strategy at UPS. Wanis works at UPS headquarters in Atlanta. And yes, every day he spends three hours in his car going to and from work. So, so how, what is the distance from your home to your office? Uh, every morning I drive for 25 miles. So 25 miles takes you about an hour and a half every day. Yes, yes. What is the problem? Is it just more people? Is it, or is it just more people who don't know how to drive or what? I think it's the success of a system that was invented in the, in the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. You know, we're reaching the point where the productivity of this system is going down. And, and uh, the basic problem is that uh, the idea that most people living in a city can use their own individual car to go to work it's just uh, impossible with the infrastructure that has been built. Now, Wanis happens to know a lot about transportation networks. Of course he would. He works at UPS. And he works mainly with healthcare clients. These are customers that need UPS to deliver medicine all over the world. Exactly. It goes from the very familiar process of distributing uh, flu vaccines every year at, at flu season to things that are very unpredictable, like the Ebola crisis, yeah. or where you have to uh, intervene very quickly with no infrastructure and you have to come up with solutions. And the more he talked to these companies, the more Wanis started to change the way he thinks about transportation networks. I work with uh, pharmaceutical companies, and they occasionally talk about drug delivery. And when they talk about drug delivery, we say, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We uh, deliver all sorts of drugs. And the customer will typically say, no, 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 we're not talking about the drug delivery to the patient. We're talking about the drug delivery uh, to the cells inside the body. And so this type of conversation just made me realize that, uh, you know, you have a fascinating transportation system within our body where uh, if you ingest a pill, it will go from your digestive system to your bloodstream and ultimately needs to go to potentially a specific area to produce an effect. The human body has a pretty efficient network to move things around inside of us. And this idea made Wanis think maybe we could take some of those lessons from biology and use them to improve the transportation networks in our cities. Here's Wanis on the TED stage. Biology has been in the transportation business for billions of years. It has been testing countless solutions to move nutrients, gases, and proteins. It really is the world's most sophisticated transportation laboratory. So what if the solution to our traffic challenges was inside us? I wanted to know, why is it that blood flows in our veins most of our life when our big cities get clogged on a daily basis? Each of us has 60,000 miles of blood vessels in our body. 60,000 miles. That's two and a half times the Earth's circumference inside you. What it means is that blood vessels are everywhere inside us, not just under the surface of our skin. But if you look at our cities, yes, we have some underground uh, subway systems, tunnels and bridges, but the vast majority of our traffic is focused on the ground, on the surface. So in other words, while our vascular system uses the three dimensions inside us, our urban transportation is mostly two-dimensional. The reason blood is so incredibly efficient is that our red blood cells are not dedicated to specific organs or tissues. Otherwise, we would probably have traffic jams in our veins. No, they're shared. They're shared by all the cells of our body. And because our network is so extensive, each one of our 37 trillion cells gets its own deliveries of oxygen 
precisely when it needs them. Blood is both a collective and an individual form of transportation. But for our cities, we've been stuck in an endless debate between creating a car-centric society or extensive mass transit systems. I mean, it, it really is amazing when you think about it, like how incredibly efficient the human body is at, at moving things around, right? Absolutely. I mean, it is absolutely incredible. Uh, one thing that I, I was curious about was the heart. The heart is a pump. And I was curious to estimate how much it would cost us to operate it, uh, you know, if we plugged it on the electrical grid. And I made some calculations. And the estimate that I found, uh, you know, in order to operate your heart on a full year on the electrical grid system, it would cost you a dollar and 10 cents. Wow. And I, I, I just was mind blown by the, how little energy uh, our body uses to transport oxygen, to transport nutrients. And it just was an impetus for me to dig into it and, and try to learn more about different components of that transportation system. So, I mean, what could a like could the future look like a, like a future where streets and highways work work like our bodies do like if if you took a city like Atlanta in a hundred years from now, what would all the transport options be like so I mean if you think about a city like Atlanta that has a, a very dense core with very high buildings and high rises, one first striking thing is that you will see more and more vehicles in the air it doesn't make sense that we've built higher and higher buildings in order to uh, create density, but that our transportation is still mostly flat, mostly horizontal. So you will see flying vehicles. Companies like Airbus today are working on flying urban taxis. You have uh, more and more ventures working on drones that can transport people. Uh, you may have other layers, horizontal layers of transportation beside the roads. Uh, you may have suspended magnetic trains or pods that transport people. So I think that's one component. A second component is that uh, you will have uh, more driverless pods that people can use that uh, move at a very fast pace in a very smart way that communicate with each other, communicate with the infrastructure. So it would be uh, mesmerizing, but it will be fast moving and definitely more fluidity in the, in the system. I mean, once driverless cars are real, these cars presumably will be networked. They'll be communicating with each other. There'll be no traffic. There'll be no accidents. There'll be no slowdowns. A car will know exactly where to go, where to park. I mean, won't, won't that sort of fix the problem? I think it will be a major solution to our problem. There are already uh, studies that are being made around sharing platforms, so uh, vehicles that are shared by multiple users. And we already uh, can see that it has a very positive effect on the congestion level in cities, that uh, one shared vehicle can replace five to seven individual vehicles on the road. That's a big improvement. And the, the perspective of having these vehicles driverless will push those savings even, even further once we have these large driverless uh, infrastructure built in and available. Just imagine a very familiar scene. You've been driving for 42 minutes. The two kids behind you are getting restless and you're late. Do you see that slow car in front of you? Always comes when you're late, right? <laughs> that driver is looking for a parking. There is no parking spot available in the area, but how would he know? It is estimated that up to 30% of urban traffic is generated by drivers looking for parking. Do you see the 100 cars around you? 85 of them only have one passenger. Biology would never do this. Space inside our arteries is fully utilized. And the tiny space inside our red blood cells is not wasted either. Uh, in healthy conditions, more than 95% of their oxygen capacity is utilized. Red blood cells are not flowing in lanes. They never stop at red lights. In the first driverless cities, you will have no red lights and no lanes. And when all the cars are driverless and connected, everything is predictable and reaction time minimum. They can drive much faster and can take any rational initiative that can speed them up or the cars around them. So instead of rigid traffic rules, Flow will be regulated by a mesh of dynamic 
and constantly self-improving algorithms. The result? A strange traffic that mixes the fast and smooth rigor of German autobahns and the creative vitality of the intersections of Mumbai. Traffic <laughs> will be functionally exuberant. It will be liquid, like our blood. And, and by a strange paradox, the more robotized our traffic grid will be, the more organic and alive its movement will feel. Do you think that in your lifetime, in my lifetime, do you think we'll be able to see these networks of, of connected, driverless cars? I mean, do you think we'll be, we'll be able to actually solve the transit problem in, in our cities? So, I mean, today you can hop on a, a driverless car in Singapore and have a ride in Singapore. You have a city like Dubai that is uh, committed to test autonomous pods to transport people and, and are sort of buses that are modular. So I definitely think that we're going to see that. The problem is big enough. The congestion problem is big enough and, and has such a high economic cost that I think the, the incentive will be pretty high for some um, very competitive cities to implement innovative solutions. So the combinations of intelligence, capital, and the magnitude of this problem just makes me convinced that we are definitely going to see in our lifetime driverless cities that are more fluid. I'm, yeah, absolutely convinced of it. Wanis Kabaj lives in Atlanta. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the power of networks, how those connections, those pathways define the world around us. Well, in my house, my doorbell is connected to my cell phone, which is connected to my laptop, which is connected to... This is computer scientist Avi Rubin. The thermostat, which is connected to the alarm system. And I can sit in my bathroom after I've taken a shower and before I've gotten dressed and pick up my phone and turn on the heat in my car and then turn on the coffee maker and the toaster. And we're all headed in this direction, right? I mean, I mean, our yes. homes and, and our appliances, they're basically becoming extensions of us. Yes, it's known as the Internet of Things. And all of these devices are not only connected to each other, but they're connected to pretty much every other device on the Internet. So I should probably mention here that Avi's area of expertise is computer security, which means he understands how all of this connectivity can also make us incredibly vulnerable. Is everything that, that, that we own that's connected to the internet, can all of that in theory be hacked? I would say that that's a fair assumption. That's totally crazy. Yes. If you had internet trouble this morning, you weren't alone. Hackers disrupted service. Series of cyber attacks today against the internet. You might remember this. It was a few months ago. Some of the biggest sites on the internet, like Amazon and Google, went down across large parts of the U.S. The attacks began early this morning as websites from Twitter to Netflix... And that Amazon disruption was caused by an attack, an attack that actually began inside the Internet of Things, inside the devices we use every day. Unbeknownst to us, hackers out there were able to put malicious software on these devices by taking advantage of bugs in the software when these things were manufactured. Basically, your everyday household things. Experts say cheap generic devices are usually the most susceptible. Like routers, security cameras, DVR. And so some attacker sent a command to all these devices at the same time saying, Attack. The attacks focused on Dyn Inc., an internet switchboard for numerous major websites. The attacks continued throughout the day. And so that attack was able to produce a situation where a lot of users were not able to communicate with some of the services that they rely on the most, like uh, Twitter and Google and other sites. The service simply wasn't available. Just not available. And it's not in most people's threat model. Yeah. People don't say, well, I'll watch Netflix if it's available. They just say, I'm going to watch Netflix. You assume it's going to be there. Okay, losing Netflix for a day or two, not the end of the world, right? But what Avi is worried about is that hackers can exploit our growing dependence on the Internet of Things to do some really serious damage, which he explained on the TED stage. So let me talk about a couple of more interesting Internet of Things hacks. One of them is 
Samsung's new smart fridge, okay? Samsung realized that in order to know what's on your calendar, people don't want to have to pull out their phone or go look on their computer. They can just look on their fridge. And so they designed a smart fridge that you could lock into with your Google credentials and see your calendar right there on your fridge. The only problem is the people that built that may not have had a lot of security training, and they don't validate the SSL certificates. Uh, for those of you that are not technical, trust me, that means bad stuff will happen. And <laughs> what you can do is, with the certificates aren't validated, you can create a man-in-the-middle attack, which will allow somebody to get the person's Gmail email, all the history of all of their email, and to log into their Gmail account, basically, because they have a smart fridge. Now, we've all seen these fitness trackers that are all the rage. Everybody is tracking their steps, and their running, and their health, and their fitness. What I'm showing you here is a fitness tracker, one of the top models, that had a bug in the software, and it causes the sensors to sample way too much, and it injured this person. Another device that is in the health and fitness space that I purchased was this blood pressure monitor. You use your iPhone, and then you can see, you know, say start, and you can see your progress, etc. So I put this thing on, and I activated it, and it started squeezing my arm. And it squeezed really, really hard. And I'm, I tend to be pretty claustrophobic, and I was starting to wonder if this thing was going to rip my arm off. I mean, it really, really, really hurt. So it didn't rip off my arm, fortunately, but I got a really scary reading. I was supposed to be dead in about three minutes based on my blood pressure reading when I did that. And there are even things like implantable devices, like defibrillators that go right into a person, and those have connectivity to devices that can control them. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? If somebody needs to change their defibrillator settings because their medical condition changed, uh, you shouldn't have to cut the person open and do that if you can do it wirelessly. But at the same time, you have to design that system so that someone can't sit in you know, Grand Central Station and put out wireless signals and have people dropping all around them because they just killed them. I mean, it, it seems like if you're a sophisticated hacker, this is like a golden age because everybody is connected. Everything around the world is connected, and more so every day. And, and we haven't even thought about what that means. I think we're living in a honeymoon phase where we get most of the benefits of the Internet without the hackers completely taking over and destroying all of this. But, you know, most people are not security specialists, and so they see software as an enabler. And you see more and more devices that you wouldn't normally consider to be smart or things that you would even want to be smart. You wonder, why would somebody make a smart one of those, and yet they do? Right. I mean, we were just, just hearing from Wanis Kabash, and I mean, he was saying how driverless cars could solve all these problems for us. And now I'm thinking, I mean, how vulnerable they would be to, to, to hacking, right? And, and not even driverless cars, all cars, the cars that are on the road today. Well, some of that's already happened. Uh, there have been demonstrations, numerous demonstrations, of being able to hack into cars, actual commercially deployed vehicles that people are driving, and getting them to brake, uh, getting them to run up to very high speeds, disabling the brakes. All of that can be done today. Ivy Rubin will be back in just a moment to explain how pretty much any modern car can be hacked. On the show today, the power of networks for good and for not so good. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with top-rated hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Hotel Tonight only works with hotels they think you'll love. And they've got short profiles of each hotel with all the info you need to know and pictures of what the rooms really look like. It's perfect for three-day getaways, staycations, road trips, and more. To start getting great deals at great hotels, download the Hotel Tonight app now. Would you put on a sweater that once belonged to Hitler? Can Chinese zodiac signs predict who's going to be a great scientist? And what happens when you use a training method for dogs to teach doctors? Answers to all those questions on my podcast, Hidden Brain. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. 
I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the power of networks, the ones in the natural world and the ones we build for ourselves. And we were just hearing from computer science professor Avi Rubin about how so many of the things in our lives, even our cars, are networked, connected to the internet, which makes those things incredibly vulnerable to hackers. This is a car, and it has a lot of components, a lot of electronics in it today. In fact, it's got many, many different computers inside of it, more Pentiums than my lab did when I was in college. And they're connected by a wired network. There's also a wireless network, which can be reached from many different ways. So there's Bluetooth, there's the FM and XM radio, there's actually Wi-Fi, there are sensors in the wheels that wirelessly communicate the tire pressure to a controller on board. And what happens if somebody wanted to attack this? Well, that's what the researchers that I'm going to talk about today did. They actually carried out their attack in real life. They bought two cars, and I guess they have better budgets than I do. The first threat model was to see what someone could do if an attacker actually got access to the internal network on the car. Okay, so think of that as someone gets to go to your car, they get to mess around with it, and then they leave, and now what kind of trouble are you in? And so they connected to the diagnostic unit on the in-car network, and they did all kinds of silly things, like here's a picture of the speedometer showing 140 miles an hour when the car's in park. <laughs> now you might say, okay, that's silly. Well, what if you make the car always say it's going 20 miles an hour slower than it's actually going? You might produce a lot of speeding tickets. Then they went out to an abandoned airstrip with two cars, the target victim car and the chase car, and they launched a bunch of other attacks simply by hacking the computer. One of the things they were able to do from the chase car is apply the brakes on the other car. They were able to disable the brakes. They also were able to install malware that wouldn't kick in and wouldn't trigger until the car was doing something like going over 20 miles an hour or something like that. They were able to compromise every single one of the uh, pieces of software that controlled every single one of the wireless capabilities of the car. And when they gave this talk, even though they gave this talk at a conference to a bunch of computer security researchers, everybody was gasping. Am I scaring you yet? <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, this is pretty scary stuff. Like, has, has this actually happened in the real world? Like, have hackers been able to do this? Well, so far, all of those have happened in the lab, and they've happened by responsible people who have published their work. But the car companies are scrambling. I know firsthand that they are spending millions of dollars on security, and there has been research that's shown that the car manufacturers have a bit of a ways to go to get their cars to be secure against hackers. You're basically saying that we're in for a pretty dark period in the future. Well, if I want to try to be optimistic, I would say that the security guys are going to come through. And I think that the way that will come through is we're going to have to change the internet infrastructure. We're going to have to change the way software is developed. Some of these changes are happening already, but not as fast as the attacks are happening. But once the attackers are able to regularly disable the internet, once we go two weeks without any connectivity whatsoever. By necessity, we will invent ways to communicate once again in a much more secure and protected way. You're saying that, there's, that we in our lifetimes may, may witness weeks without the internet? Yeah, I think we'll someday long for the days where we only had a few hour outage of the internet. Is there any argument to be made that like, maybe we should just put the genie back in the bottle? Like maybe we should unnetwork parts of our world? I think the genie is out for good. I don't think there's any way to do that. Um, unfortunately, the bad guys might do that for us, but there's no way to impede progress. You can't, uh, for example, uh, propose that we eliminate electricity and not use electricity. And just as we can't go back to the days before electricity, we're never going to go back to the days before networks and connectivity. Ivy Rubin is a professor of computer science at Johns Hopkins University. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Uh, how many friends do you have? I usually at this point say none. You have no friends? <laughs> that completely floors presenters. But <laughs> Wait, how do you have no friends? <laughs> well, it's not true. It's just that I don't know. <laughs> 
This is Robin Dunbar. And I'm Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford. Are you a networker? Do you go to parties and network and try to get numbers and cards and things? I try to avoid it as much as possible. I'm very old-fashioned. <laughs> you're, 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 are you like an introverted Englishman? Absolutely, yes. Okay. I'm the archetypal <laughs> Brit here. <laughs> Good heavens. Okay, so even though Robin doesn't like talking about his social network, he's actually one of the world's leading experts on the topic. In fact, he's famous for coming up with a very specific number, a number that's basically the limit on how many friends people can have in their social networks. And it's literally called Dunbar's number. So Dunbar's number is the limit on the number of people that you can have meaningful relationships with at any one time. So I kind of like to think of it as all the people you might uh, not feel embarrassed to go up to if you bumped into them at 3 a.m. in the morning in the departure lounge bar at Hong Kong airport. They would know who you are, where you fitted into their social world. You know who they are and where they fit into your social world. So you might have some catching up to do because you haven't seen them for a while, but you wouldn't feel that you're intruding in any sense to go up to them. So so it's a number of people that you can conceivably have some kind of relationship with. Yes, yes. And, And to be fair, that number really consists of a series of layers of increasing intensity of relationship quality. So mm-hmm. you're really surrounded by a series of circles. Of okay, so Robin says you can think about your friend network a little like a series of concentric circles, with each circle representing a category of friends. So in the center, in the bullseye, you've got an inner core of about five of your closest people. What you might think of as intimate friends. Then the next circle out, you've got about 10 still very close friends. Best friends, maybe. and then Next circle, about 35. Good friends, and then... Then you've got the rest of your not super close, but still friendly with friends. Anyway, altogether, it adds up to... 150. Dunbar's number. Is this really true that that's the size of our groups? The answer is yes. Here's Robin Dunbar on the TED stage. It turns out that the reason for that is it's a problem with your brain. And we've been able to show with uh, neuroimaging studies and a series of neuroimaging studies, the number of friends you have is essentially a function of the size of this bit of the brain up here, right above the eyes. And what this allows you to do is to understand how other people are thinking, the state of their minds, as it were. And it's the number of individuals whose minds you can handle in this kind of way that seems to set the limit on the total number of friends you have. And this was our attempt, first, very first attempt to look at what it meant for you as an individual. And we asked people to tell us who they were sending Christmas cards to, not the number of cards they were sending, but who were in the household, the total number of people in the household. And that turns out to be very close to 150. The average in this data set was 154. There's a lot of variability around that. Some of us are incredibly mean and don't send any cards at all. Uh, some people send them to their butcher and their baker and their lawyer and you know all those kind of important people. But the key is that it's you know, nicely peaked here around 150. I mean, it's so interesting because I was thinking about our, our Christmas card list and it is about, yeah, it's about 150 people. But do we know if this number has always applied to humans? Yes. So I said about looking into the data on community sizes in small-scale ethnographic societies, and it turns out that, yeah, that's actually a very, very common number. You get exactly the same number a 1,000 years ago as the average village size in England and Wales. We know that from the Doomsday Book, when you know William the Conqueror thought he'd better find out what he'd just conquered. So he did this complete census of the whole country. It's a wonderful resource. But it turns out the average village size in England and Wales was almost exactly 150. And when William the Conqueror divided his new kingdom up among his henchmen and uh, his mates that came over and helped him out, it was to exactly 150 people. So, so what you're saying here is you can only have about 150 slots in your brain that you can fit friends into? Yes. 
but it's also partly about time. So we build relationships by investing time in them. The reason you get the layers is really a consequence of decisions you make about how to distribute the time you have available for social interaction. And you end up investing about 40% of your total available social time in your five closest friends and family. And then another 20% of your total available time in the next 10 people. And the rest get much thinner quantities of your time. But as you pass over that 150 boundary, it, it really drops to pretty much next to nothing. Robin started to come up with the idea for Dunbar's number in the 1990s, which, of course, was before a colossal change in how we keep track of our friend networks, which, of course, was Facebook. Particularly when Facebook came on stream, I think there was a kind of promissory note made on the tin can by the the techies that created it, which said, this is going to open you up to the global village. You're going to have hundreds of thousands of friends all over the world. And the real question is, is that so? Uh, The short answer is uh, no. (laughs) Despite the fact that Facebook allows you to put 5,000 friends up on on the can, as it were, uh, in fact, most people don't. And um, as a result of sort of this discussion about who your friends are on Facebook, Facebook actually started to look at their own data. And when they did an analysis of the entire whatever it is, 400 million Facebook users and looked at all the numbers of friends people had, the average was actually about 150. The key to the the issue is really, even though you sign up and can sign up lots and lots of people, in fact, you spend most of your time talking to only a very few of them. And indeed, what's more, we've shown this with Facebook data, as well as cell phone data. You can pick out these layers beautifully from the frequencies with which people post to each other, let's say on something like Facebook or phone each other. And what's more, they're doing so at exactly the same rates as they would normally see them face to face in the real world. That's amazing. So basically, the way we have always interacted with uh, other humans hasn't changed because of Facebook or, or, or social networks, digital social networks. It seems not. I mean, huh. it's, in some ways, it's not too surprising if the problem is partly a cognitive one. You've only got 150 slots for friends and family generally. The digital world isn't really going to change that. What the digital world might do and what we sort of expected it to do, I have to say, when we looked into this initially, was it allowed you to be more efficient with your time. So the big problem with the face-to-face world is it literally is face-to-face. So you have to sit there talking to somebody and you can't often have a conversation with several people simultaneously. We thought the digital world would cut through because you can post to several people simultaneously if you want. But we kind of discriminate between meaningful exchanges where I'm posting directly to you, send you a private message or something like that, and our kind of Twitter use of social networking sites, which is a bit more like a lighthouse in the dark of a winter night, you know, who knows how many ships may or may not be passing by and actually see your signal and actually care about it. There's no real interaction going on there. So it seems to be this sense that you are trying to communicate meaningfully with me that becomes important in establishing the relationship between us. Okay, so I get that like we don't have more friends now because of Facebook, but it has made it more efficient to keep up with, with lots of people, right? And so in a sense, has that made us happier than our pre-Facebook, pre-computer ancestors? Um, That's an interesting question, actually, as to whether we are happier now than we ever were. I suspect happiness in that sense has a lot to do with how well embedded you are into your network, how well you can keep contacting people. And, And clearly, I mean, the whole reason why Facebook and the other social networking sites have been so successful is precisely that in this mobile world, it's a great medium for keeping up with people after they've moved. My only hedge on this is that in the end, that inner circle of five people, the reason you have them is that they're the people who will 
come to your support in times of great crisis. Now, the problem with that is if they're the other side of the continent, no matter how often you phone them, Facebook them, WhatsApp them or anything else, they're not right there sitting next to you to be the shoulder to cry on. Whatever you make of it, a shoulder to cry on has to be a physical thing. Hmm. So people who spend a lot of time on Facebook trying to keep up with friends who've moved are possibly losing out. You know, they might be better served by trying to replace them or at least one or two of them with people who are local whose doors they can go around and knock on so they can cry on the shoulders of. So I've read that uh, you are not on Facebook, right? Uh, why? I st- <laughs> I'm just too busy. It well, doesn't require it, much time. You just, <laughs> you just, you know, post something or not post something. It's yeah, it's you know, it's very seductive, and I can well see why people do it. But at the end of the day, I would rather sit in a pub with a beer and a group of people and have a chat than write stuff on Facebook. It's just me. <laughs> Robin Dunbar, he's a professor at Oxford University, where he studies social networks. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down a road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on networks this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkinpour, and Casey Herman, with help this week from Chris Benderev, Camilo Garcon, and Daniel Shukin. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at tedradiohour at npr.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter. It's at tedradiohour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the Ted Radio Hour from NPR. Thank you.